Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. And greetings to episode number 16 of the Talking Biotech series. Hi, I'm Kevin, and uh, glad to be talking to you, and uh, glad to see the uh, reach of this podcast growing every week. Uh, This was a really interesting week for me. I actually spent the week in Cornell University uh, participating in something called Alliance for Science, which is a Gates Foundation-supported effort to expand scientific literacy and uh, connect especially with people in the developing world and, and engage better communications of scientific concepts and biotech in those areas. And um, for me this week, it was really, uh, it's one of these humbling moments where you go there as a teacher and walk out as a student. Uh, Just when you think that you're done growing, when you pretty much are where you are, you have transformative experiences that really do change you again. And uh, I didn't think that I could, you know, Pretty much, uh, you know, after 48 years on this rock, I kind of had a good idea of where I was. Um, And I think it really does go with maybe a greater sensitivity and sense of mission for what we're doing in agriculture and how it's really working to serve more folks in the developing world. And more and more of my brain is there every day. And um, meeting people from all over the world and hearing their stories was a wonderful experience. I've been saying for a long time that if we're going to communicate about this uh, effectively, that we really need to reject this premise that genetically engineered crops are going to feed the world. That um, that's a throwaway statement. It's generic. It sounds really uh, you know pandering. Uh, Really, what it's about is genetically engineered crops can solve problems. That they're simply tools to address specific needs, and we don't have to go far into the world to understand that there are people with very specific needs, whether they're a micronutrient like vitamin A or iron, or whether it's simply to be able to grow a crop in a place that has a marginal growing environment. And these stories are abundant throughout the developing world. And this week we heard from a gentleman from the Philippines who talked about the hunger in his nation and how families will go to the cities and rummage through garbage cans to wash off the food so they could feed it to their children. Uh, foregoing consumption for themselves. Um, many stories of of areas that are war-torn, um, areas that have uh, extreme weather events, uh, just mostly just not enough calories, not enough food to go around. And I was very um, excited to learn these stories one-on-one because they're much more personal and much more energizing to me, and I think they resonate with the critics much better than Uh, feed the world uh, rhetoric because we're seeing that this really does have specific applications. And when we put put names and faces and regions on these discussions, I think they do show a much greater sense of urgency. In part one of today, uh, we'll talk to Nasib Mugwanya, 
And Nasib, who I call throughout this entire thing Nasim, um, I think I'm suffering from uh, post-traumatic stress from Taleb. Um, Nasib, uh, he works as a he works for the government uh, in, the, in the National Crop Resources Research Institute. And part of what he does is connect with farmers and the communication around biotechnology. Uh, he has experienced uh, a lot of interesting situations in his life, and, and we'll talk about that. And the second part of today, um, I'll work on talking about the uh, Alliance for Science Public Forum. And it just was a, a, maybe an hour uh, discussion with the public about transgenic crops. And I'll talk about some of the points there and integrate them with what we heard from part one with Nasib. So it was a very uh, touching experience last week and um, certainly something that I would love to participate in again. Uh, today, we'll uh, talk to uh, Nasib Mugbwanya about his experiences as a, as a government officer in Uganda. Hi, everybody. This is Kevin from Talking Biotech, and uh, I'm really um, very happy to talk from uh, Cornell University tonight with a special guest. And uh, I'm speaking here today with uh, Nassim Mubwanya. And Nassim is here at the uh, Alliance for Science meeting to talk to us a little bit about what his experiences are as someone who is a communications expert in talking about agriculture in Uganda. And uh, welcome, uh, Nassim. Uh, thank you, Kevin. And... Uh Hi everyone out there, my name is Nasib Mugwanya. My background is agricultural science and I spend most of my time talking to farmers about uh, the importance of science and how it can benefit and empower them. So this was a chance encounter with Kevin Falter. I didn't know him before. And one of the experiences as someone who has been talking to farmers is the potential of what biotechnology can do to help solve some of the uh, problems uh, in Uganda. Well, uh, well, Nassim, well, let me ask you. Yes. Well, well, let's first define the problems. Yes. So tell me about the major problems that occur in Uganda. And some of, well, let's start there. Before we talk about biotechnology, what are some of the major issues that exist in terms of human health or environmental impact? Uh, thank you. Uh, as someone who is in the agriculture sector, I'll talk about what I know about the challenges in agriculture. And the most crucial challenges right now are pests and diseases in key staples such as cassava and banana. And we have diseases like banana bacterial wilt for which uh, they are really threatening to wipe out a crop that is eaten by almost half of the population in the country. Uh, diseases like brown strip virus affecting cassava, which is a huge staple not only in Uganda, but also sub-Saharan Africa. And all conventional approaches, all the traditional approaches to try to address this problem have not seemingly made much headway. And Biotech is right now offering one of the most promising uh, options to address these kind of problems. But we also have problems like malnutrition, problems like hunger, and these are really pertinent. These are not made up. Problems like poverty, you know, abject poverty, where some people, you know, depend on one meal a day because they cannot afford to have more than one. So these are really big, big problems, and we need to think broadly about how to address them. Now, 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 now Sim, you, you brought up many points. Yes. But what I would like to at least start to focus on is you talk about this idea of um, many families having one meal a day. Yes. And when you have one meal a day all of the nutrients in that meal may be very relevant. Yes. And so if so, maybe share a little bit about your story, about how important that one meal a day is, and why something like, let's say, a biotech banana that would bring vitamin A, 
how that may be relevant to your situation or the situation of many families in Uganda. Uh, thank you so much. I would personally give my story as someone who grew up with a single mom in a family of three kids. I was around grade six when my mom could not afford to give us more than two meals a day and we had to entirely depend on bananas, matoke. And we would only have this 5 p.m. every day, matoke every day, and matoke only has starch. Now, I was fortunate that we could have that one meal in the first place, but also I was in grade six where I was not a toddler that I needed those very essential, you know, micronutrients and, you know, essential vitamins you might need. So, to me, this is a story that other families around the country, you know, can also bear witness to. Because I grew up just like any other Ugandan kid. And my family, though not so rich, was also not so poor. But again, it could not afford three meals a day. So people out there should know that there are families that are entirely depending on one meal, and this meal could only potentially provide one essential nutrient, which is starch. And up to now, right now, even when things have gotten better in my life, I have problems having dinner. So that's the long-term effect, that because I grew up having one meal a day, I cannot have dinner. Now, think of a toddler who also was maybe having one meal a day and they missed out on an essential nutrient which could be for brain development. Maybe right now, their long-term effect right. on that could be that they are not maybe very smart or, you know, having any health problems. So, it's this is not made-up stuff. When scientists are trying to devise means of addressing issues of like fortifying for those families that can afford one meal so that they can have all the essential nutrients that that one meal can have a variety for them. So that one meal that you're getting per day can have the maximum effect especially in micronutrients which can frequently make the difference between blindness or other health effects, being able to provide that with a very simple biotechnology solution um, is a very important, very important point. Really, I really appreciate you sharing the story of your family. I'm glad it, to hear that. It, it, because to me, as, as someone who, you know, in my family, we never grew up wealthy. We always had everything we needed. And I think it's very difficult for Americans to imagine a scenario where you have a number of children who are dependent upon, um, you know, like your situation, one meal a day, and this meal is bananas, and we need that we need those bananas to, and you know, in America, it's not the bananas we have; it's starchy bananas that more like plantains. That this is what you have to sustain you. How do you feel about these biotechnology alternatives that may be able to fortify a banana with other micronutrients like beta carotene? Oh, I'm so happy that biotech can offer a solution to address some of the limitations, you know, in terms of some of the meals people in places like Uganda, you know, which are huge staples. And when I talk of bananas, it's something eaten by almost half of the population. So if there is... A scientific innovation out there that can make someone even if they ate only one banana a day when that banana is equivalent to like how an American can have fruits can have salad can have eggs can have you know all these you know variety so I'm very positive about any scientific solution out there whether it's biotech, whether it's something else that is emerging sure. that can address, you know, challenges like this. Cassava. I've not talked about cassava because bananas is 
my favorite, where I come from, from the central Uganda, it's everyone. You cannot miss a restaurant without bananas. But cassava, sub-Saharan Africa, you know, this is a huge staple. And it's entirely starch. So if there's a scientific solution out there, whether biotech or an emerging, you know, technology, to fortify it so that people who are depending on it for breakfast, for lunch and dinner, and this is not made up stuff. This is what people are feeding on. Where I come from, northern Uganda, people are eating cassava. It's a huge staple in that region. Mm -hmm. This is a war-torn region. These are people who are coming back from, you know, conflict zones. And cassava is one of the resilient crops that can adapt, you know, in places that have been really, you know, were torn and they're entirely depending on this crop for survival so imagine if you had a technology that can make them have all the nutrients in one crop that would be awesome and And, 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 i'm happy about any scientific solution towards that and really i should mention you know cassava is something that we in the west really have no no concept of but it's a, it's a very robust plant that makes a very large root that has tremendous reserves that people will boil to remove compounds like cyanide, which the plant naturally produces. How, how do you normally prepare cassava? Cassava uh, largely differs in terms of preparation, depending on the you know, region and ethnicity. But where I come from in Uganda, in the central, for example, we take it in the boiled version. And this boiled version, think of what you have for breakfast in America. Cassava is what I, when I used to go to my grandmother's place, that was like our bread. If that's what is eaten in America as, you know, a breakfast thing. Cassava is like bread. Now at lunch, it's the same thing. (laughs) Now the only difference they would do is, instead of, you know, eating it raw, like without, anything else at lunch maybe you eat it with beans if those beans are there but sometimes they could not be there and then you have it for supper so imagine if you were the american eating bread for breakfast and lunch and supper so think of whatever you eat for breakfast in america and you're eating that throughout the day on maybe bread so cassava is that kind of thing. But in other areas of the country, like northern Uganda, it can be smoked, roasted, and you eat it. So people are trying to create these various cooking preparations to break the monotony, because you're eating one food, and you don't want to have it in the same kind of style, because it's kind of boring. Imagine if you were eating bread when it's only salty. So these... Preparation methods sometimes are because people are trying to innovate around, you know, this is the only food I have to eat. How do I become creative so that I still eat it and I enjoy it? Well, well, let me ask you about this, though, is that in many areas of uh, Africa and all over the world, that even that cassava would seem to be potentially a very prized... Uh, a very prized food because it's something and it's calories and 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 so how much of uganda suffers from not even having enough cassava i I cannot be sure about the statistics but maybe i can give you a nuanced picture okay that amongst the five major crops grown in uganda cassava is in the top five and regions like eastern uganda for example Northern Uganda, which is, you know, recovering from war, entirely depend on that crop. Now, think of any problem that would attack cassava. And right now it's there. Mm -hmm. Cassava brown streak virus, cassava mosaic virus. Now, these are two major viruses that are threatening this crop. If I would put it in perspective, it's like a human having... Ebola and HIV AIDS virus. Imagine, you know, that situation of being, you know, faced with those two challenges. So to answer your question that how much of the population right now that 
you know, could be not having cassava. I may not be factual on figures, but I can be factual on how much of the population that can suffer as a result of not having cassava. And that is eastern and northern parts of Uganda and the entire sub-Saharan Africa. But I, I want to talk about Uganda because this is where I'm coming from and I know the situation there. And what I'm talking about, these challenges are there and they're threatening a huge staple. That if cassava was wiped out by brown streak, people are going to go hungry. And whatever we know that happens when someone is hungry, it's death. So we need to think of whatever solution is out there to save some of these key staples that populations all over the world are depending on for survival. But, but we know that there are already solutions that have been demonstrated to be very effective against brown streak virus, uh, maybe against cassava mosaic virus. These solutions are biotech solutions that already exist. We know that there are vitamin A enriching uh, technologies that have been applied to cassava along with iron enriching, which is very important, micronutrient. And so what is the current opinion in, in Uganda towards the biotech crops, both in the government and maybe among the people? Uh, thank you. The opinion out there, first, government is pro-science, it's very positive about science. We have not looking at government because I work for a government institution. I work for the National Crops Resources Research Institute, which has the national mandate of developing crop varieties for the country. So government is pro-science and up for any solutions, whether biotech or conventional or organic, to address some of the challenges we are seeing with cassava. Now, the public right now, and what I'm seeing as someone who talks to farmers every other day is the public opinion is starting to be again shaped by how the debate in the Western world, you know, is being constructed about biotech crops. Yet, realistically, the contextual realities of Uganda and the Western world are different. So the antibiotic activists, they, there's a bunch of growing movements against biotech crops in Uganda, and they're parroting the same narrative as in the Western world, that, oh, Monsanto wants to come and, you know, control the food, you know, supply system in Uganda. But for as far as I've been in America for my short time, I've not seen cassava, you know, anywhere I've been, you know. No, Why don't. would Monsanto? It would be the most, you know, I think worst, you know, business decision for them to make to, you know, venture into cassava. No, it's, uh, we, we, we've, we've used cassava helper here and it doesn't work very well. So. Oh, yeah. No. So I, I've not seen that. I've not seen bananas in, in, in the restaurants yes. I've been to. So meaning that all the biotech research being done in my country, Uganda, is addressing issues we are seeing with bananas. That's right. Which is pertinent to Uganda, banana bacteria wilt. And not because that we've not used conventional approaches. I come from a research institution. And all, think of all the conventional ways you can address banana bacteria wilt. They have not made much headway. And biotech is offering one of the most promising options to address this challenge to a key step up. So as a national institution and as government, we are embracing this science to address the challenges within our contextual realities. Not because, you know, we are worried of Monsanto, but because we are worried of what banana bacteria wood is going to do to some of the crops that people are depending on. And let's take it even one further than Monsanto. Yes. Now, what's really nice about this situation, if there is a, a, a very, as we say in, 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 in the U.S., every cloud has a silver lining. Yes. 
the silver lining is that Uganda is not depending on the West to make its own solutions, that you're coming up with your own biotechnology solutions. You're saying we're not going to, that we're going to help ourselves. And our scientists are going to elevate a solution for Ugandan farmers. And we know that there are multiple solutions that are in the pipeline for banana, cassava. And so how, how long, and I think Uganda is probably a leader on the African continent, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but where are these products in that situation, and do they look like they'll be used in Uganda anytime soon? Thank you so much. That is a very good question. Right now, the situation in Uganda is we are on actually top of the game of doing biotech research on the continent, and we've done research on bananas to address banana bacteria wilt, cassava, brown streak virus, rice on nitrogen efficiency, water efficiency, maize, and other key staples in this country. Now, where's the challenge? There are people out there feeding lies about the potential of the technology and what it can do to address some of the challenges. And because to deploy biotech crops commercially, Uganda being a signatory to the Katagena Protocol, we need to have a biosafety and biotech law in place. So right now, we are at a bill level where we need to have a law for farmers to enjoy some of these biotech products. And ask me what's happening. The bill has been in parliament for a long time because activists have fed lies and fears to our parliamentarians, our senators that, you know, this is a technology meant to, you know, kill Ugandans. So it's, it's a big challenge that these activist groups, whoever is funding them, whatever their motive is, trying to stand in the way of a technology that is going to address some of the challenges I've really uh, talked about in this podcast. And let me point this out to the listeners out there that as someone who talks to farmers, before I came to the United States, I talked to one farmer who has been growing cassava for over 20 years. And I asked her about her opinion about GMO cassava. Because she had told me, you know, she's having problems just like any other farmers growing cassava in Uganda brown streak and she's almost giving up on this crop but because uh, she has other crops you know she can depend on but she feels terrible that cassava has been her crop commercially she told me i don't care you know how the crop is bred all i'm looking for is a solution whether it's through biotech if you came with cassava cuttings and you told me they can address brown streak I'll take them on. And she told me previously it has been her usual way of, you know, adopting improved varieties. She has never asked a breeder that how did you breed this, whether conventionally. (laughs) She has always, you know, looked for a variety that can address her problems. And this is typical of all the farmers I've talked to. They don't want to know. Actually, one farmer told me it's like how you go to hospital when you have a headache or any health problem. You don't want to know how that drug was made, but you want something that will address your headache. That's what one farmer told me, that me, if I'm having banana bacterial wilt, you who is working for a research institute, I would only ask you, do you have a variety that can address my banana bacterial wilt? So this is something I found very insightful, that... We who are talking about this, sometimes we are detached from the realities of what farmers care about. Farmers need solutions, not activism. If you ask any activist in the world who is against biotech, they've not developed any crop variety, whether conventionally. And if any farmer gave them that challenge, that, okay, you're saying I should not use biotech, what solution are you giving me? They may not have that solution. So these farmers are really suffering with these problems and they are looking for solutions and they don't care how your 
breeding you as a scientist. They don't even want to know whether it was conventional or biotech. All they need is I have brown streak virus wiping my garden. Where is the variety that can address that? How you arrive at that variety, that's not what farmers I've talked to care about. And when you spoke of this farmer, you said she. Yes. And, uh, and I even have her video if you want it for, you know, verifying what I said. Well, uh, I, I, no, no, no. Yeah. My, my, I, think my, I think what I want to do is deconstruct the construct that the West has. And when Americans think of farmers, they say here, you know, and I'm not saying uh, necessarily the listeners of this podcast, but the general feeling is these are people who are being told what to do by corporations, by Monsanto, to grow the seeds they want to grow. And what you're talking about is a woman yes. who, how, how many people does this woman feed? Oh, great. She told me she has nine children. Okay. Nine children, and she's married to a husband. And these children have also produced children. <laughs> so she also has some grandkids yeah, around her home. Now, what's her husband doing these days? Is he just uh, playing draft uh, fantasy football or what? So the husband is a retired civil servant, oh, okay. and he has, uh, <laughs> was in public service. And they, they work together on the farm, but she's the lead person okay. in the farming Activity so, and, and, I, and I was just kind of having fun there. She is. She runs the farm. She runs the farm. And even when I went to interview her, the husband excused himself. He's like, oh, we are happy to have you. Yeah. She's the expert. Yeah, and I'm, I'm let her here. talk to you. And he got out. And I was, you know, humbled by how this farmer, you know, was really, you know, telling me what I don't hear from activists. Yes. No activist will tell you that farmers need solutions. That's right. <laughs> activists will always, you know, portray like, oh, farmers don't, you know, want this, it's going to, you know, poison their fields. Farmers are not stupid. The ones I've talked to, they are looking for whatever is addressing their needs. When you meet a commercial farmer, they will go for hybrids if that's what makes them get profits. Whether it's Monsanto, whether it's what company, they don't care. They will come to a shop and say, I'm a commercial farmer. All I need is maize that will make me, you know, double my yields. Yeah. I've not had any farmer out there, you know, you say, oh, you know, I've had GMO seeds, you know, and they're not. That's not what I've had. Farmers are about, I need a seed. For this kind of challenge, whether it's GM or hybrid, they don't care. It's, 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 it's about what it can do regarding what challenge they are facing at a time. So, Nassim, I, you know, I think we should conclude here. But I, I do have to say, it's just been such a pleasure to meet you and understand more about Uganda, more about Central Africa, and the challenges that are faced there. And here's an here's a interesting, interesting place that we are here. If you could talk to, to audiences of the U.S., what would you potentially tell them about rethinking the way they think about biotechnology? Uh, I think my, word, my last word, if I would tell the Western world out there, is if for them there's plenty of what they have on their table, that is awesome, that's great. In the developing world, it's not the case. And biotech can offer that kind of variety in a single kind of meal someone is having for a day in the developing world. And I think that's a really humbling thought for me. And, uh, you know, hey, going forward, I stand shoulder to shoulder with you, my friend. Um, <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult uh, thing for me to approach to think about someone who's been so blessed in his life and always had something on the table to talk to someone who has been in such uh, thin resources and uh, I'm glad you spent the time with us I'm gl I hope others understand and ways that this technology can help so I wish you well and I hope to see you in Uganda someday I'm glad to hear that thank you so much Hi, Talking Biotechers, this is Vern Blazek of the Vern Blazek Science Power Hour. Now, while my podcast is on hiatus, 
I'm busy like a bee promoting Talking Biotech Podcast. Now what can you do to help me spread the message? Well, this mothership isn't monetized. It's paid 100% by Fulta out of its grocery budget. No external funds will be accepted. So you can help by spreading the word. Tell a friend. Hell, tell someone you don't like. Scratch Talking Biotech podcast into the bathroom stall at Chipotle. Maybe even hang a note on the Whole Foods Shamans and Healers bulletin board. Most of all, write a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Spread the word on Twitter or use social media to talk about something really cool you heard here on the podcast. The bottom line is, this is about science and how science has helped people improve plants, medicine, and animals. It stands to further improve varieties with the precise tools of biotechnology. And welcome back to part two of uh, Talking Biotech. And today is a real interesting, different kind of approach to this because we're recapping what happened this Thursday night at the Cornell Alliance for Science um, Night for the Curious, which was a public discussion and ask me anything with me and four other scientists. And we have with us tonight uh, one of the fellows from the program, someone we know as Vegan GMO Online, um, Jason Merkley. Hi, Jason. Hi, Kevin. So let's just give me a quick little background on the uh, Cornell Alliance for Science and why you're involved. Yeah, the Alliance uh, Global Leadership Fellows Program is what I'm involved with, and we've got 25 fellows from... Uh, I believe, 10 different countries around the world. And we've all come together to talk about uh, the science of GMOs and communication strategies to help advocate for bringing the, these uh, new technologies to um, places where it's not accessible at the moment, where it can do the most good. And uh, the Cornell Alliance for Science, it's um, funded mostly by Gates. And, uh, and you guys are there for how long? It's a 12-week program, and we're just starting the fourth week of the program on Monday. Okay, so, and, and your, your involvement, now how did you get involved, and how, do you, how does it tie in with some of the causes you care about? Well, I started working with an organization called Vegan GMO back in January, um, and Vegan GMO is a partner organization with Cornell Alliance for Science, and they invited us to apply, um, and I got picked from there, along with my other fellow, Jamie Foley, who also works with Vegan GMO. And clarify this Vegan GMO thing for me a little bit. I mean, I, I, I kind of get it, um, as we talked about the other morning, but tell me the tie there. Um, yeah, so in the vegan community, um, there's a lot of misinformation um, about food in general, agriculture. Uh, we've got a lot of people who are fans of organic agriculture and who are strongly against any kind of biotech or GMO applications. And so we're doing our best to sort of challenge the notion that organic is the best way to feed people and the most animal-friendly way to feed people. So we uh, talk about various potential opportunities specifically for vegans, where we have maybe different nutritional needs than the general public, um, opportunities to biofortify food to give us, you know, some of the B vitamins or um, omega acids or things like that that we typically might not get as much of in our diets, as well as um, some more humanitarian or, um, I guess, animal-friendly biotech applications. Um, for example, one we talk about a lot is insulin for people who suffer from diabetes that used to be something that had to be harvested from uh, cows or pigs and thanks to biotechnology we're able to um, have it synthesized with microorganisms and uh, take any kind of animal exploitation out of the chain. And that's really interesting. It's kind of my synthesis of this because I find there's a, vegans are interesting folks. You got a lot of people who are kind of you know, bandwagon jumpers on a trendy idea that they kind of like that maybe don't have really long-term uh, interests. But you find a lot of people who just truly are interested in animal welfare and thinking about uh, all of the issues around food very critically. 
and uh, I have, I'm all in support of that. And I, I find that a lot of vegans do say, well, biotech can be part of our solution in addition maybe to organic and other, other production methods, but let's not take tools off the table. And I think that's been a really good message you know, from many places. Um, but let's talk about uh, this um, event the other night, and I wanted to have somebody else talk about it because I certainly have my ideas, but I, I you know, would rather hear it from you. And if I could have you put on the hat that kind of represents the ideas of the fellows from the program in general, because you heard them yesterday in the room. Uh, this was a forum that was about one-third people who were probably very against biotechnology and maybe about a third that were for, and we're talking about the audience, and maybe about a third who weren't sure. And uh, it was a little bit emotional. There were some kind of angry people there in the room too, but uh, what were some of your, what was uh, maybe your biggest surprise and your biggest takeaway from the night? Well, the next day, we had a really great session with the fellows um, just discussing um, what we learned, uh, you know, hearing everybody's perspectives. And it was pretty interesting. I think a lot of the fellows in the program come from countries where um, I guess the discourse is a little more muted, a little more polite. It's maybe less acceptable to stand up in a public forum and express the kind of dissent that we saw and, so some of our fellows were a little taken back by that. Um, but, you know, I think it's not a bad thing. I think that it's great to reach out to communities and give them a chance to talk about their concerns. Um, I think, unfortunately, quite a few of the people who are most interested in coming to these kinds of events are people who are not necessarily looking to have questions answered as was the theme of the night, but rather people who have a platform they're trying to stand on and find a soapbox to express those views. So um, I think for a lot of us, that came as a surprise. I think we were maybe a bit naive thinking that we would actually get people curious about the science who had legitimate questions. But I think for the people who were there who were maybe on the fence, that were maybe less inclined to participate, it was still um, an eye-opening experience for them and a chance for them to learn a lot more about the science. And I think that was really maybe a very strong influence for those folks on the center to see the way that scientists were behaving versus how people in the audience were um, coming at it. Because going in, some of the rules were, you know, these are scientists. They're not policymakers. They're not industry executives. They have a hard time answering those questions. And one of the first people to stand up went on a five-minute uh, diatribe about, well, then why does Monsanto do this? And why does Monsanto do this? And what about Monsanto? And Monsanto did this. And why do you, you know, why is Monsanto backwards on a set of You know, it was, it was this crazy rant about a company that we can't answer questions for. You know, we're, I'm, we, we don't do that. And it was an opportunity for us to maybe connect with an audience about the concerns they have and the technology. And we had a little bit of that, but, but not that much. It was mostly a lot of amplification of uh, well-covered areas like Agent Orange and things like this. But what were some of the interesting comments that you heard the fellows make the next day? Um, when So they, they saw this public forum and... Uh, I, there was some themes that I kind of got a handle on, but what do you think? Uh, there was there was a pretty wide range of sort of emotional responses. Um, it ranged all the way from sort of trepidation and fear um, of having to run into these kinds of people in our future endeavors promoting technology um, all the way to people who were wanting to uh, plan new events with in different ideas on how to structure it so that it would be a little bit more productive for the kinds of people that we wanted to reach. But overall, um, there's a great energy. There's a lot of enthusiasm. And um, people in our fellowship were just really motivated even more so to go out and confront 
some of these mythologies and ideas about technology that are patently false but being spread around. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things that to me was truly upsetting, and 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 I I luckily I kept my mouth shut, um, was when uh, someone stood up and was talking about labeling, and you know, and here we have an affluent nation where you know we have this big spread of food in the other room where people can go take as much as they want without limits of many different kinds of things. It really was nice. And uh, here we co- have people who come from countries where some of them come from places where the annual income is fifty dollars, and a meal a day is not a surprise is 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 not uncommon, you know, and in is a luxury in some cases. And to listen to somebody who you know obviously was you know well fed and functioning, uh, talk about how we're going to separate good food from good food, because he didn't want to learn about the facts of the matter. It seems so trivial and trite compared to the travails of what was happening in the nations where our fellows represented. And it was almost embarrassing to me because it, the, the real focus shouldn't be whether the affluent nations of the world should have a decoration on a box so that they can uh, uh, punish a company or uh, you know, make some sort of political statement or whatever they want to do. This should be about how do we use technology to take care of the people that need that technology. And uh, that, to me, really it gave me a whole new focus, and I, I really learned a lot in that whole session. Uh, what Did you feel anything like that as well, especially from the fellows? Yeah, definitely. And I'll say um, for myself, being part of this fellowship, one of the best things about it is getting to connect with people who are coming from these food insecure regions who've seen firsthand the devastation of malnutrition and poverty and some of the problems that we could start to address with some biotech applications. And uh, I think it was pretty um, startling for some of those fellows from Uganda and Kenya and uh, Indonesia who've seen these things to see people in the audience concerned about labeling or, you know, decorations on the box, like you said. Um, But I think it's really lit a fire under them, and they're really excited about creating some content in in various multimedia formats to try to reach out to the American people to let them know that, you know, this isn't a game for them. This isn't some kind of political statement or some kind of fashion statement that there's really lives on the line here. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we get a little bit emotional talking about it. I'm starting to feel a little bit emotional just talking about it now. Um, last night I was talking to one of our fellows from Indonesia, and she was showing me some photos um, from her homeland, uh, you know, little kids with distended bellies or... Um, elderly people on the streets who look like toothpicks and uh, uh, it's amazing it's amazing that people in the United States are focused on this labeling issue Um, so I think in the coming weeks uh, you can probably expect to see some good things coming out um, from us in the fellowship and the Cornell Alliance for Science emails and newsletters I think we're going to be producing a lot of content addressing those perceptions in the American public and uh, trying to get people to associate, you know, when they hear words like biotech or GMOs, to stop associating it with these silly American political battles and start associating it with people in other countries who are really struggling and who really need help now and who are really going to be able to benefit if we can just get out of the way and let them have access to these tools. I agree. And I think the idea of, you know, frame your argument and do not use the word Monsanto. Give me your best argument about this technology. Do not use that word and see if people can still do it. I think the best thing that can come is a synthesis from the fellows from all their different uh, regions and, and, and backgrounds would be for them to provide us with the stories 
And in other words, I think that, you know, the power of storytelling, the ability to describe and give people an emotional connection doesn't come from uh, a number like 50 million people starve or 320,000 babies under, you know, whatever age. Those things don't move people. But the stories of local landowners who uh, had a crop but had a devastating disease and had to sell a farm or had to uh, forego eating uh, and, and had to resort to, you know, different uh, – uh, basically were had nothing at those points. Um, the woman from Indonesia told me that they would put rocks in the pan, you know, just uh, at times so that, it, so that they had something. It was, you know, these kinds of stories, that's the stuff that makes you, uh, as somebody, I mean, I'll, I, 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 I've always been really careful about how I look at food, but I'll, I'll never look at a plate full of food again the same way. And, and, I'm, and I get it. So we need those fellows to help us communicate what need looks like and what is the face of poverty, what is the, the of extreme poverty and malnourishment, and especially the malnourishment and poverty that could be corrected with a genetic engineering solution. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think our fellows are really excited to present those stories and talk about their own experiences, um, you know, trying to grow, trying to farm in Africa and losing 90% of their crops to bacterial wilt, um, talking about their friends and neighbors who have struggled. Um, yeah, we're really excited to get those stories out there. And I think if people keep a close eye on um, the social media stuff coming out of Cornell Alliance for Science for the next couple of weeks, they're going to start to see some of those stories coming out. And what was your favorite part of the night the other night? <laughs> well, for me, it was, uh, I guess I had a little bit of a unique experience as I got drafted to be the microphone runner. So I was joking with the fellows the next morning that I got a really good workout uh, just from running around and sort of wrestling with the microphone with people or uh, when people started talking and getting animated, doing, you know, some shoulder circles, trying to keep the mic positioned in front of their mouths. Um, I think one of the, one of the most interesting things was there was a gentleman who came in late. Um, he sat down sort of by where I was standing and he kind of waved me over and uh, I knelt down to see what he needed. And he had a piece of paper where he had written down, some talking points that apparently some local anti-GMO activist group had put out to give to people to ask the scientists on the panel. And he asked, he was pointing at the list and asking me, you know, which one of these things have been covered so I can cross them off so that when I get called on, I make sure I don't double up on something that's already been asked. So uh, it, for me, it was interesting to see that there was... Um, so much organization there from the anti-GMO side and uh, a really coordinated effort to try to uh, subvert the event to promote their agenda. Uh, they they were impressively organized, in the, and I think it's good for us to realize that and see what we're up against and um, to know that that's what we need to get ahead of. It was kind of fun for me because they were handing out flyers ahead of time that uh, completely just ripped me apart with false information. And uh, to be able to read it and have it in my queue, and no one asked me about it. I was a little disappointed, but it wasn't about me, so I was glad to not bring it up. But I was really excited to be able to confront the guy directly afterwards and say, you know, you got it all wrong, dude. And, uh, you know, he didn't have anything to say about that. He said, oh, the, well, so you, I got the in, false information from the New York Times? I said, yes, you did. And uh, he was a nice enough guy. I know uh, he'll, uh, give, he gave me his business card and, uh, you know, we're going to talk about it. But uh, he's been putting stuff all over the Internet about me. And I was glad to be able to at least put at least be able to put a name with the face. And I was pleasant enough and, I, you know, I, you know, I, I, I could have given him a, a a good uh, choice words on the way he behaved. But I'm hopefully uh, developing a relationship that will allow us to at least have the reality of the situation come out 
Um, whether he's big enough to agree to that, we'll see. But there's a lot of very nice things about this. A lot of people afterwards came up and asked questions, and all of them were the same old, same old stuff that's been debunked for 20 years or 10 years. So it was a little bit surprising in, in that regard. But do you, uh, do, so what, what's next with uh, Alliance for Science for the remaining amount of time? Well, um, I guess coming right up on Monday morning, I believe we're meeting with Mark Linus, who is um, another guy who works for the Alliance and uh, does a lot of good advocacy work. And we're going to be consulting with him along with 270 strategies on um, basically how to build advocacy campaigns in our home countries, sort of targeted at specific problems related to, you know, agricultural technology access um, in each country. Well, that's, that's all sounds really good, and it's really filling a niche, and I, I appreciate what they're doing for us, and, and or they're doing for agriculture, you know, not for us, not for me directly, but certainly for agriculture. Um, what, what about, um, just to kind of conclude, if anyone wanted to know you or find out more about you online, like how do you find you on Twitter or Vegan GMO or any of the other information um, regarding the causes you care about? Sure. Um We've got www.vegangmo.com is the Vegan GMO homepage. Um, we've also got a page on Facebook. We've got a Twitter handle, at Vegan GMO. My personal Twitter handle is at Mason Jerkley, M-A-Y-S-O-N-J-E-R-K-L-E-Y. They can be found at allianceforscience.cornell.edu and on Twitter at Science Ally. Well, thank you very All much, right. Jason, for your time this morning. I know it's a you know it's a it's a day after a busy week, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Uh, no problem, Kevin. It's an honor. And that was Jason Merkley from Cornell University's Alliance for Science. And uh, Jason was one of the fellows, of one of 25 fellows from international locations. He was one of two from the U.S. Well, one two from the mainland U.S. and uh, Jason uh, really represents what this is all about. It's about new thinking, about the ways we communicate science, especially to those in the developing world and places where resources are desperately needed. And biotechnology really represents one tool in the plethora of scientific tools we have that can add very discrete edges to resolve these issues. So that's it for Talking Biotech today. And it, it, tying back in with the theme from the beginning, um, I could have never guessed that I would learn as much as I would learn from simply doing this podcast. And uh, here I thought I would be uh, maybe some sort of uh, you know host for facilitating a conversation, but I've become a student, and it really has gotten me so much more interested and conversant in different areas of this particular discipline. And so I urge you to really uh, help me out, um, find others to also join us in learning together about these important technologies. Uh, if you can, write a review on iTunes or Stitcher. The reviews are very important. And uh, subscribe if you can. That uh, helps our numbers significantly. And more numbers really do raise the visibility of this podcast in the various places where it's promoted. So thank you so much, and we'll talk to you next week on Talking Biotech. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. How many people have cats? Oh, good. Um, I gave my cat a bath. That's the only reason. Thinking about it. I'd always heard you weren't supposed to give cats baths. My cat came home and he was really dirty, and I decided to give him a bath, and it was great. So if you have a cat, don't worry about it. They love it. Sat there and enjoyed it. It was fun for me. Uh, fur would stick to my tongue a little bit, but other than that, it was a great uh, You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra. 
the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.